0: But first to the big question in Africa, will the deal hold? That deal that this week brought what seems like a genuine breakthrough in a war that has not been on the front pages in the Horn of Africa, when the Ethiopian government and the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front came to an agreement to permanently halt hostilities. Their quotes, surprising the world. It's been a brutal two-year civil war, hundreds of thousands of people have died, millions are displaced, food's been used as a weapon, and famine threatens. But this ceasefire seems to be the result of an urgent, passionate intervention by the UN chief, Antonio Guterres, heavily pressuring the African Union to become involved in brokering and enter hostilities. Their absence from serious negotiations was becoming very obvious. To explain more, we're joined by Samuel Getachu from, who's a freelancer uh, in Ethiopia, and I welcome him to the program. Thank you. Before we get into the details of the ceasefire, how have people responded to this news in Addis Ababa, where you're based?
1: I mean, people are surprised that this conflict might be ending. Nobody knows if, if this is going to be implemented the right way and people will accept it. Uh, But people seem to be excited that this deadly and brutal conflict of two years is finally ending. I've been traveling in many of these regions, Tigray, Afar and Amhara, too many victims. It's a conflict defined by sexual violence in 2022. And I'm not surprised that uh, people are are excited by the announcement that this is ending. Nobody expected uh, that the African Union actually would succeed in bringing these actors to the table.
0: Are they the main actors, by the way, or have others been brought in to really pressure them?
1: Well, the Biden administration uh, was involved. In fact, the US envoy was on the same plane as the TPLF leadership. They went to Magali, uh, brought them to South Africa. Uh, they had, there was fear that they might be attacked on the way and the EU had their own interests. Uh, They did not want Ethiopia to be like, perhaps like Somalia or South Sudan or even Syria and have uh, millions of Ethiopians try or make an attempt to come to uh, European nations. Uh, So they did not want Ethiopia to break up. So they were also involved and everyone seemed to be involved from their own interest, including the UN agencies that were in charge of uh, supporting the famine victims and the conflict victims.
0: And the terms of the ceasefire generally, what need we know? What's most striking?
1: Well, the striking is um, even in the days before the announcement, uh, the Prime Minister had come out and said they were under pressure to to compromise. The Ethiopian side has been asking for TPLF to be disarmed, The TPLF had been declared as a terrorist organization by the Ethiopian government, and the TPLF was accusing the other side of some kind of genocide. So with this kind of talking points, there was little hope that this would succeed. But, you know, we'll be reading the fine prints in the days to come, um, and we'll find out exactly what they signed up for. It's hopeful that this conflict will end. But again, um, we're hearing of uh, more victims by the day, even now.
0: Uh, I mean, the the TPLF does seem to have made a major concession to disarm, demobilise and reintegrate fighters into the federal army. I was quite surprised. Does that suggest how desperate they really are?
1: No, it just means that um, they needed to compromise. The Ethiopian government needed to compromise to end it. Knowing that there were millions of Ethiopians displaced, not just in Tigray, all over the country because of this conflict. Famine was that defined the previous generation was coming back to Ethiopia. Ethiopia was once uh, a country with one of the fastest growing economies in the Horn of Africa, but it was, even the economy was suffering. And there was, I think, a uniform like understanding between the the Ethiopian government leadership and the TPLF leadership, that this conflict needed to end before more people would become victims. And that's what I think led them to sign on and compromise for the first time.
0: You don't see them as having been starved into peace?
1: Well, I see them being pressured to sign on by the US government and by everyone. I know you've been observing from afar but if you have been in Ethiopia, especially if you have been traveling to these regions, you'll find millions of reasons why they needed to compromise, all of them. The Ethiopian side, the TPLF side, before more victims. I mean, people were literally dying. It's a conflict defined by rape. Women, young girls were being raped. There were, There's a whole generation of young people who did not even go to school for the last two years So you can imagine what kind of future Ethiopia was beginning to have. And I think that that understanding is what pushed them to compromise both sides.
0: Because ironically, it looked like it was just about to deteriorate further, which seems to have really provoked people like uh, Guterres to intervene. And I wonder about the neighbouring nation of Eritrea, for instance. It wasn't involved in the negotiations. And given that they fought alongside Ethiopian forces against Tigray, Doesn't this raise some worrying questions as to whether they will comply?
1: Well, the conflict was between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF. The Prime Minister came out a year ago and said that the Eritreans were getting involved only because they were trying to protect their interests. He said there was fear that the TPLF would be heading to Eritrea for yet another war, another conflict, and it's still up in the air whether they will accept it or not. But again, the conflict is between the Ethiopian government and TPLF. And that's what it is. Even the Amhara leadership wanted to get involved in this negotiation. But again, the conflict is between the Ethiopian government and TPLF.
0: How hard has it been, even as a local journalist, to cover this war? I mean, there's been very little access indeed to Tigray to see the impact of all of this uh, using food as a weapon, for instance.
1: Well, we haven't been in Tigray for a year now, Um, We can only imagine how desperate the people are. Even when we traveled a year ago and the people were desperate, they spoke of rape and starvation, famine, all kinds of things. And it was really, really, really emotional talking to them. And even uh, in the last year, as a person, I had nightmares of what happened to them, what could have happened to them and so on. But we were forced to rely on information coming from the UN and other organizations that worked in Tigray. But again, we couldn't speak to the victims. And I can only imagine what they would say when this opens up and we start talking to them. And I don't even know how safe it would be for us to go back and report from Tigray, because I'm not a Tigrayan. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Hara and Oromo, mm. a, a different tribe. And I don't know how that would work in terms of my own safety.
0: This is crucial. This has... this,
1: yeah, yeah, and we need to give these victims a voice. You know, in the continent, there's always numbers being thrown, unlike the conflicts and perhaps in the Ukraine, where we seem to know everybody's num- names and faces and so on, because each one's are individual. But in this continent and in, in Ethiopia, Uh, We only hear of numbers and we need to give these victims a voice, a face.
0: Well, will the negotiations now have to tackle the sources of these political disputes, these tremendous tribal uh, difficulties that that caused the war in the first place, and which you're alluding to so eloquently now?
1: Well, you know, everything is up in the air. Um, You know, even... In terms of the human rights abuses of the last two years, again, not just in Tigray, Amhar and Afar, I don't think Ethiopia has enough resources to even begin to investigate. Even countries like yours, Australia and even in Canada, they've been trying to investigate and look at what's been happening to the Aboriginal people, for instance, and how to uh, bring peaceful coexistence between them and the rest of uh, perhaps Canadians or Australians has been difficult in this rich countries with lots of resources. But Ethiopia isn't a rich country. It's a very extremely poor nation. I can't even imagine how they would investigate. They can promise, over-promise that there will be an investigation. But I don't think Ethiopia has any resources to investigate. I don't know if they're going to build a museum for them or if EU is going to come and fund... Like they did some in Rwanda, kind of for instance. Local, they did that in Rwanda. Yeah, local. Yeah, but it's just, I mean, in Rwanda it happened in the 1990s, but this is happening in 2022. You know, if I, we all assumed, you know, even Ethiopia was changing, and now we're going back to old era of endless conflicts and famine, and it's really disappointing.
0: Yes, I can imagine it is. I mean, does it have to be some sort of deep national process, Samuel, to deal with this as, as part of a peace process? Uh, it, it, you know, has that got to be there as well? Um, perhaps
1: there should be lots of ideas, debates among Ethiopians. But, you know, that crucial peaceful coexistence has been compromised. Uh, there's a high divorce rate among different ethnic groups. Politics has been very divisive in Ethiopia. The war has brought lots of fights, conflicts.
0: Mm. I'm sorry to hear it. It's obviously incredibly upsetting. Um, I, I'm really sorry, Samuel. No. Uh, it, uh, yes. So you had obviously extremely high hopes for your country and this is like a terrific decline that you weren't anticipating by the sound of it. I mean, after all, uh, Prime Minister Abe was given the Nobel Peace Prize a few years ago and there was such incredible anticipation for Ethiopia, so much promise.
1: Yeah, there was. I mean, even, you know, on an individual basis, people are just fighting and the conflict is not just in those regions, it's all over Ethiopia, even among Ethiopians outside of Ethiopia. You just have to open. So... Yes. Well, look, social let... media to see the debates and so on. The peaceful coexistence has been compromised. I don't think Ethiopia will have enough resources to bring back Ethiopia the way it was.
0: Let's just end on. Can you see, from your perspective, as an Oromo man, could the world contribute in a way to sort of get past this stage that you're at at the moment?
1: Um, I think the world needs to give. Um, perhaps people like myself, my colleagues, the access that we need to go and cover what happened and speak to victims. I think Ethiopians deserve to know what happened. You know, these victims uh, need to have faces and voices. Perhaps the world has been supporting Ethiopia in terms of famine. I mean, I grew up in an era of live aid where endless money and resources came to Ethiopia, but nothing changed We can learn from what happened in the 1980s and understand how we can have an impact in Ethiopia. And there are too many victims. You know, we can take lessons from other countries, perhaps good nations like, you know, the South African example of listening to victims and moving forward. I think those lessons need to come to Ethiopia. But again, Ethiopia doesn't have the resources. And I think there's all kinds of leadership uh, in terms of helping Ethiopia and Ethiopians move forward.
0: Well, we certainly hope so, and maybe we'll check in with you again, uh, Samuel. I just desperately hope the deal holds so that you do have a chance to, to start getting back to that more hopeful stage. Thank you very, very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Samuel Getachew, a freelance Ethiopian journalist, just showing you the impact of war well, up next, uh, one of the true f- uh, few true glo- global events. It happens every four years. This one will surely be different. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.